And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show, podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org, or quite frankly, whatever it is, whatever uh, 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 mobile or device or whatever device you're using right now to listen to this show, we'll have a subscribe button. So just click on it and you will be having access to all of our shows. Today's show will, is on Getting Pregnant After Cancer. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. And let me take a second to say happy anniversary to Creating a Family. We are celebrating with this show our seven-year anniversary. We have been on the air for that long, believe it or not. And keep in mind that all of our shows have been archived and are available for you to listen to on the radio page of our website. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medications through the Faring Heartbeat Program. To learn more, visit the heartbeatprogram.com website. Of course, you can also get more information from your oncologist or your reproductive endocrinologist. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics. So sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page, top left corner of creatingafamily.org. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week, and a recent blog you might enjoy is today's blog, which is titled, Odd Woman Out, The Curse of Infertility. It's talking a lot about a subject that comes up not infrequently on our Facebook support group about uh, how your social circles change when your friends all become parents and you are struggling. You lack a common uh, commonality of your experience, and it uh, tends to be an excluding uh, event socially as well. And we, we explore whether it's you being excluded or you excluding yourself um, and whether or not that matters. Uh, so anyway, please join in the discussion we're having over there at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of all of our sponsors, including our gold sponsors. We have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only 1 in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become donors. We also are proud to have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey as a gold sponsor. They blend scientific expertise and leadership with patient-centered care. They understand that one size does not fit all, and they will personalize your care based on your individual needs. They have seven offices throughout New Jersey and Pennsylvania. 
On today's show, we'll be talking about getting pregnant after cancer. What are the risks of attempting to get pregnant after you've had a cancer diagnosis and been treated? Should you even try? And how long should you wait? Our guest today will be two of the leading experts in the U.S. on pregnancy after cancer. We have Dr. Excuse me, Dr. Jacqueline uh, Jessus. She is a breast surgeon and the Oncofertility Consortium's clinical co-director of oncology. She is also an assistant professor within the Department of Surgery and a member of the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center at Northwestern University. We also have Dr. Nicole Noyes. She is a reproductive endocrinologist with NYU Fertility Center, and she is and a professor and the director of reproductive reproductive surgery at the New York University School of Medicine and Medical Center. She is also president of the ASRM Special Special Interest Group on Fertility Preservation. Welcome, Dr. Noyes and Dursus to Creating a Family. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. Well, I think the first question really has to be, anytime we're talking about pregnancy uh, after cancer, uh, has to be, should you attempt it? And, and I realize that that's a loaded question. It has to be approached from many different angles. So let's start with the risk of pregnancy to a mom who has already had and been treated for cancer. Does pregnancy increase a woman's risk for uh, for reoccurrence? Uh, Dr. Jessis. So, you know, I think that that's an excellent question, and I think that what I would like to say just by by way of my sort of gestalt sense about answering this question is that every single yeah, patient has approach. to be looked upon based on their stage and based on their disease subtype and really seek that kind of data from their oncologist as they begin to approach this matter. And I'm going to come at this really specifically from the standpoint of breast cancer, and I, I, I suspect that Dr. Noy sees the majority of patients with breast cancer as well. But uh, that being said, this question has been addressed um, a couple of, in, in a couple of different retrospective studies. The reason why we have some limit to the ability to really confidently answer this question is because there will never likely be a prospective study, which is the best study to address this kind of question, because we're not going to take a bunch of survivors who are interested in having a child and, and give one group the chance to have a baby and the other group the chance to just be observed. So as long as we can never do that, we have to accept the fact that we're dealing with data that's based on patients who have already gone through um, their treatment, and we look back on their outcomes in a retrospective fashion. And I think there's been a lot of controversy on this topic addressed uh, in retrospective studies that originally suggested that perhaps pregnancy could be protective for patients actually with breast cancer, I which always that. was a really uh, – but I want to sort of try to set the record straight based on a new paper that actually came out as recently as January uh, 2013, which I think has done the best to try to control for as many different factors that uh, uh, have sort of in, in some ways perhaps biased to those previous studies. And uh-huh. uh, this was this was a, a paper that came out in a prestigious cancer journal, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, this past January, that um, actually has identified the fact through a multi-center retrospective study uh, that actually pregnancy does not protect against a recurrence, but it does not influence a recurrence either. And that would be true for patients that have hormone responsive cancer, as well as patient as well as for patients who have hormone unresponsive cancer. And I think that. In the end, as as I've said, we, we have to accept the fact that our data to address this question is not going to be the best data, 
But of the studies done, I think this is probably one of the best ones we'll ever get, and I think it should be very reassuring that pregnancy after um, hormone-responsive breast cancer does not seem to influence the risk of recurrence, though it is not protective, as I think a few other studies may have insinuated. So from that endpoint, and so in addressing this study, I think it's reasonable to suggest that a patient with um, prognosis and treatment that was thought to be for cure could could uh, approach the plan to have a pregnancy. You know, but but I, and I had read I have not read this study. I had read the study that came out. I guess it was maybe last year, maybe 2012. I'm not actually sure, but which which suggested that there was a uh, a possible protective influence. Right, uh, and the pregnancy. right. And, and but my question, and I, I realize that we may not actually know the why here, but it, it, are there good uh, hypotheses as to why, in, in, in particular, a hormone responsive cancer would not be more likely uh, uh, to have a reoccurrence? Because one thing we certainly know about pregnancy is that uh, there are uh, a lot of hormones that are released in pregnancy. So why would that, from a common sense standpoint, why would it, do we know why, um, and I realize you're only speaking of breast cancer, but do we know why a uh, pregnancy would not be uh, likely to be, uh, for a person to have a, a reoccurrence, make the person more likely to have a reoccurrence. I think you, you would have to argue in this instance, and, and from all of the studies that have been, been done that have tried to, and even this most recent study that tried to, to contend with that confounder of selection bias and this healthy mother effect that was likely insinuating that pregnancy could be protective, I think the reason why we're seeing reasonably good data from, from these patients is that the majority of them have been treated for cure. We would have to assume that the residual disease they had left that was either circulating tumor cells or small volume disease in the breast had been adequately treated through you know, multimodal therapy, either chemotherapy and radiation or radiation alone, and then some duration of tamoxifen so that whatever viable cells that were left would not be considered, I would, I would guess, relevant to the impact of the stimulus of what estrogen exposure was was. Um, um, facilitated through the pregnancy. So I think that that's got to, you know, has to likely be the reason is that these patients were truly treated for cure. Well, okay, so Dr. Noyes, we, uh, uh, Dr. Jarris has just talked about the um, breast cancer alone. Can you address um, the situation for other cancers? Um, are other cancers, uh, and, and I realize it's a very general question since there's a huge universe of other cancers, but uh, are other cancers, more, are we more likely to see a reoccurrence uh, for a woman who has uh, who attempts a pregnancy or is pregnant? Well, I think what's really important is that historically cancer and pregnancy didn't necessarily overlap, meaning women would have their children, say, in their 20s, and have cancers even in their 40s, but be, it would be remote from pregnancy desire. And now that has really changed. Women are waiting and having their children later, and these malignancies, some of them are even happening earlier, so the overlap has really been the big change. Um, there are, you know, like you said, there is a myriad of tumors um, that you're addressing here, but it looks like in general pregnancy does not worsen a condition, a cancer condition. There are some tumors, some, for instance, some hematologic malignancies where the immune system can be set off and it might trigger uh, a, um, a recurrence, but it, it, by and large I would say the answer would be no. And on the breast cancer issue, I agree with with um, what's been said already, I, I don't think that we know whether uh, breast cancer is worsened by um, 
pregnancy, but an awful lot of women are now getting pregnant after their cancer and seem to be doing quite well, and that's reassuring. Okay. So, and and, and I very much appreciated uh, what Dr. Jarrah said about the the problem is we'll never have the gold standard for uh, for uh, a, um, a type of study that would be prospective, you know, um, and we can't have that. So we're we're right. stuck so, with making right. Guesses. So that's why I think so. It's it's really it's it's interesting that this group did a um, multi-center retrospective study to address concerns about this original data that they had published suggesting a protective effect. And they wanted to get at why they may have found that and try to really resolve this issue about the healthy mother effect, which I think has been sort of predominating a lot of the, the prior studies that were published before this one in, in the JCO, which, which meant that women that were going on to get pregnant were probably a more favorable disease stage, healthier, and, and in, in many yeah. ways just destined to do better. And so they were biasing our understanding of this issue. But I think this, this study really tried to control for those issues, and it should provide reassurance. It, it really should. And I will say, as far as the women who are coming for fertility preservation and for pregnancy after cancer, by and large, they are the healthier women, women who realistically think that they are well enough to become mothers. And so that is a bias, but it's sure. a good bias, meaning if you're going to be a mother, you should try to be on the healthier side. <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah, lot of work to be a mother. Yeah, yeah. it certainly is. Mm-hmm. So, now, All right, so we now know that, at least from the reoccurrence standpoint, um, women are not uh, putting their health at undue risk, or not at, at, at greater risk. I think that would be the better way to say it. I agree. So, uh, Dr. Noyes, what type of, and again, I realize that we're having to talk in, in gross generalities when, in fact, cancer is a very specific for each individual, but is there a general time frame that we can talk about for women to wait after cancer treatment before ty- trying to get pregnant? And, and I'd like to approach that from all angles, from the healing of her body from the treatment, from the treatment, any of the uh, negative effects of treatment getting out of her system, for just the, all the things that we have to kind of weigh, also for the risk of reoccurrence in waiting long enough to see if, in fact, she can be considered cured. So from all those perspectives, what type of time frame should a woman, and then my next question is going to be about men, so let's start with women and then we'll, we'll talk about men. Well, the answer to that is a radio show unto itself, but I'll try to, to, to summarize. <laughs> I, I would say, and I, and I I defer to Dr. Jarris on this one, but I, I would say at minimum uh, physicians still seem to want to wait one year uh, disease-free, meaning after treatment and knowing that there's no cancer there before uh, allowing a woman to get pregnant. Um, sometimes it's longer, particularly with breast cancer patients who need tamoxifen uh, for five or ten years, then you're delaying for the length of time of the tamoxifen as well. If a woman is getting chemotherapy and any of the chemotherapy affects the ovaries, um, sometimes there is some recovery from that, but it takes a minimum of six months to see that recovery. So if a woman does have chemotherapy, I usually have them wait at least six months before even looking at their hormone levels to see how they're doing. So I would say if you wanted a general rule of thumb, I'd say a minimum a year, and for the younger patients, often two years is even safer. So I I think that... That's an, an excellent guideline to go by. And, and we have actually begun to study this question in a formal way and talk to patients about how the decision-making that they had specifically, again, to breast cancer regarding the long duration of tamoxifen therapy influenced their choices in terms of prioritization of having a family versus um, uh, uh, doing everything they could in their survivorship period to prevent a recurrence. And so what we've what we started to consider is the possibility that 
predicated on stage that patients may want to take tamoxifen for one to two years, then go off tamoxifen to have a child, and then go back on tamoxifen for the prescribed five now to ten years total. With the understanding that the patients in the control groups for the original tamoxifen studies who were ended up crossing over to tamoxifen after some year of delay in initiation still actually were uh, receiving a significant benefit from being on the drug. Even we have studies, specifically a study out of Wisconsin, that had patients seven to nine years out when they went on their tamoxifen, and still they outperformed patients who never took tamoxifen. So we use that data as some indirect evidence to support for certain selected patients, the ability to stop tamoxifen, to have the child, and then go back on tamoxifen. You should not get pregnant on tamoxifen. It is known to be a drug that could harm the developing baby. And so we would advocate for at least two months off tamoxifen before attempting a pregnancy so that the metabolites of the tamoxifen should be out of the system by that point. But I want to stress the fact that certainly not every center is is advocating for this, and we are studying these patients in a prospective fashion now to determine how they compare to patients who never go off tamoxifen. But you can imagine that as the rules and or the advice for tamoxifen duration changed just in December 2012 from five to ten years as the potentially new prescribed duration, that that could be difficult for a patient in her later 30s or early 40s who was thinking about uh, having a child. We in fact, I, I just the person I just saw before I came on this radio show was asking just that, can I go off my tamoxifen um, and, and try naturally for a year and then go back on if I don't get pregnant? And I said, that is a question for your oncologist. So I would say from a right. reproductive endocrine standpoint, I don't make those decisions. I tell the patient to speak with their oncologist and make that decision thoughtfully with them. But my first egg freezing, I think you know we do a lot of fertility preservation here, so we freeze a lot of eggs and embryos for patients who have cancer and are going on to get treatment that will make render them sterile or much less fertile. And my very first success um, with a cancer patient was someone who had breast cancer who went on tamoxifen for three years, stopped it, used the eggs that we froze, fertilized them, got pregnant, and now is back on her tamoxifen and doing very well. So, you know, and I it, think was that's a great story. it was scary for me. It was my. It was scary for me because I. You've got to get the okay from your oncologist. Yeah, that's a great story though, and I think what we're finding in our research here is that when we actually go back and call patients who were not uh, compliant with their tamoxifen, that we have found a significant percentage of patients cited the fertility concerns that they had as a reason for their noncompliance. So what we're trying to do is say, listen, it doesn't have to be an all-or-none event where you never take this drug because you're prioritizing your fertility. There could be a middle ground that we strike, and I think this is going to be something that we really try to advocate for in terms of education of patients as we, we move forward from this point. And as as you said, Dr. Noyes, I, I really look forward Forward to the results of our prospective work to, to provide some better data on the safety and, and efficacy, but we do have good indirect data from the original study suggesting that staying on the drug even after a, a hiatus is going to uh, is going to pr provide benefit. And we have similar stories like your patient here at Northwestern with patients who are doing well. Great. Well, we actually got a couple of questions on exactly this issue. And one of the questions, uh, and I will just summarize because you've answered uh, in your discussion, you've answered, I think, everything, except for the the one would assume that that the less time off tamoxifen, the better. And, and that's if, true. If, so if we're making that assumption, then the then the issue is for women who think that they're they may still be fertile and who may 
either not have uh, uh, frozen eggs or want to try because from a cost standpoint or for any number of reasons standpoint, want to try naturally. How, how uh, Dr. Jarris, do they weigh that, the odds, uh, not the odds, how do they weigh the risk of if we try naturally, you know, we would have to give it, one would assume, a year and then, and then approach uh, fertility treatment versus e- trying to shorten that period, which may or may not shorten it, but by going immediately into fertility treatment and doing something like IVF. Um, how, how to weigh that uh, from the time off tamoxifen versus the money, the, the risks associated with IVF and things like that? So obviously that's a complicated question, but I yeah, think well, that I there are some ways. To, yeah, I think that there's <laughs> some ways to, to try to drive at the at the answer that need to be done as sort of in in concert with your with the reproductive endocrinologist that you work for that you work with. You need to look at the patient and say how how nascent is this patient's sort of menopausal status, and so how close are we to the opportunity for this patient to have a child? How close is that? to the end point and so that I think that can help right. you to guide with your patient on some level the immediacy for which they have to make a decision. I think that has to be sort of thought of in concert with how high risk do you see this patient. And so do you see this patient as a stage 3 patient with a a survival rate that would be, you know, far lower than a patient who's a stage 1 or early stage 2 patient? Because we know that patients who do not you know, we are at this point, going to say that the gold standard is at least five years of tamoxifen and that the patients who do not take five years of tamoxifen will likely underperform as they compare to their um, to their cohort who stayed on for five years. So I think you have to factor these two issues together and say, how high risk do I view this patient? How important or sort of pressing is their fertility issue? And then how much is the patient's wishes to have a family going to override all of your suggestions on some level so that the patient's decision-making may ultimately be the driver? So I think that if the patient has plenty of time, it's a young patient in her early 30s or, you know, even we're seeing patients now with more frequency in their 20s that you know could could have some time. Have them get their fertility assessed, and Dr. Noyce can talk to that more thoughtfully, I know, than I can. And then if if their measures seem to be to, seem to be promising or, or favorable, encourage the patient to stay on the drug for some period of time, one to two years or longer if they feel comfortable. Or they can proceed with fertility preservation measures to sort of put eggs in the bank as they as they proceed through this duration of therapy but a lot of it has to be driven by their menopo- their their fertility status the their high risk status and their actual desire for a child beyond all advice that we may have i well, i that, agree that, with everything I'm sorry, ahead, I agree with Boyd. everything she said, and I think it's very important for the patients to, and and they're lucky if they have this, that the um, reproductive endocrinologists and the oncologists are communicating with each other in a multidisciplinary way, meaning that, I mean, I'm constantly shooting emails back and forth with, with uh, the doctors of the patients say, are you okay with this? Do you think this is reasonable? So you really have to um, individualize for each patient because there are things like the age, the stage, that, you know, there's so many issues, but the woman's mm-hmm. age is the most important important predictor of fertility. And so that's a, a big one when I'm considering like what's feasible. In general, it can take an average of five months to get pregnant naturally. Usually after five months, if you're not pregnant, there's something going on. So when you said, oh, you could try for a year, I would say ordinarily I tell people three to five months. And if you're not pregnant and you, and you have this window that you're working with, then you should consider doing some fertility yeah. treatments to enhance things. That makes good and sense. I, yeah, and I, I would agree with that. 
Um, Dr. Noyes, now, in, in general, we think of age as being the best predictor of, of a woman's fertility. Does the fact that the woman has been treated for cancer, does that change the, uh, the alter, the, 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 we used to say, you know, location, location, location is in real estate and age, age, age is in um, fertility. But does, that, uh, does treatment for cancer alter that uh, mantra? Do you mean if a woman's had chemotherapy? Yeah, or radiation, either one. Well, those are different. So if you had, like, local radiation to the breast, that wouldn't affect your ovaries at all, but certainly many chemotherapies, and particularly the ones used for breast. There's one agent, uh, cyclophosphamide, which is uh, a real culprit for uh, causing ovarian damage, ovarian egg damage within the ovaries. And so, um, yes, when a woman's had chemotherapy, she's actually, her ovaries are going to act older than her age. Some chemotherapies don't have any effect on the ovaries at all, but some have major effects. Some put women into full-on menopause. So the uh, so if a woman has had uh, chemotherapy, then the she would need to uh, go to a reproductive endocrinologist when trying to make this decision. She needs to go to a reproductive endocrinologist. And what type of tests can a reproductive endocrinologist run um, to help assess her individual? The age of her or her her uh, her, her proximity to menopause. Um, yeah, that's a very good that's a very good question. So there are pretty simple blood tests that are relatively accurate, meaning they're broad sweep. They're not like, oh, I okay, you have five years to get pregnant. They're not accurate like that, but they do give you a broad sweep to see if your ovaries are acting the age, the chronologic age that you are. Meaning, are they looking like 35 or are they looking more like 40 and you're 35 years old? And so we we can get a general picture with just some simple blood work. Gotcha. So we're not talking huge amounts of money at this point. What we're talking is, and, and a huge workup or a medical involvement, um, it's a relatively simple blood test that can be done to give you a sense and a feel for where you stand and where your fertility stands. And, and, and exactly. you need that to factor in when making the decision. Uh, on when and how long uh, to you know to get how long to be on the tamoxifen, how long to be off that type of stuff. Exactly. All right. Well, Doctor Noyes, you mentioned that we've been talking about time frame for women, um, but does the time frame differ uh, if we're talking about a man who is being treated for cancer and and uh, how that might affect how long he should be wait after treatment? Um, before attempting um, um, to get his partner pregnant? It is different for men because men are making sperm every day. So new sperm are being created all the time, and so the effects on the sperm that's there is like sort of at the time that you're getting it. Um, In general, men are asked to wait as well, and some men have recovery and some men don't after chemotherapy, meaning some men who get chemotherapy don't have sperm for a while and then they do and then other men don't have any sperm. And again, it depends on the agent, the dose, the age, there's all kinds of, actually age isn't a big factor, but the dose and the agent that they receive. Um, in general, men are not, um, it is not advisable for men to try to get pregnant at the time they're on chemotherapy because there can be effects on the DNA within the, within the uh, sperm. Um, I don't know if that helps you or not, but as far as timing, I couldn't give you an exact time because I don't treat men, so I don't really have that at the tip of my tongue here. So I I can't I can't speak um, to all malignancies, but we we have you know we have compiled some data about men, and I think that one of the critical factors about about men in in particular is that 
the sooner you can get them over to a consultation, given the fact that their cryopreservation ability is, is so streamlined compared to what it is for a woman, you really need to know that, that the sooner that uh, – that you can get a man over to, to a consult, the better. But I do want to just cite a couple of things that are interesting about, about male fertility preservation, and it's that, that I think up to the last time I investigated this, cryopreservation of human sperm with a successful pregnancy was actually 28 years um, of, 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 of a sperm bank, uh, sperm being banked that still resulted in, uh, in, in a pregnancy. So you can really take, capture young, you know, young teenage boys and think that you can do something to help preserve their fertility if they're going to, to, to need to uh, be treated for cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think that DNA damage, uh, as Dr. Noyes had mentioned, of sperm can be up to two years after mm -hmm. completion of therapy for patients undergoing radiation and chemotherapy for testicular cancer or systemic therapy for Hodgkin's. And so I think that it's important to sort of underscore this pretreatment counseling is really critical uh, for men, and as well as the use of contraceptives uh, for a significant period of time after um, after treatment. And there is some data that also suggests that uh, even years before presentation for patients who end up with Hodgkin's, that they have abnormalities um, in their sperm. But I think that we can do more now to understand and select the healthier sperm to choose ultimately uh, for IVF. Well, and that's interesting because I have also read where the general time frame recommendation uh, would be a two-year period, which confused me because uh, I had thought, well, men are producing sperm on a regular basis, whereas women are born with all the number of eggs they're going to have. Therefore, it seemed to me that that was a little counterintuitive, uh, and yet uh, I understand that it's because of the potential DNA effect, which... That makes right, sense. you know, from from the you know other factors that are produced by the cancer that are potentially Im impacting the the form the formation of the DNA is, is likely a culprit. Okay, you are listening to Creating a Family today. We're talking about getting pregnant after cancer. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you could connect with us at Creating a Family. On Facebook, you could connect with either me personally at dawn.davenport1, or you can like our Creating a Family Facebook page or join our Creating a Family Facebook support group. The easiest way to find either the page or the support group is to type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and both will pop up. You can like the group, uh, like the page, and join the group. All right. So are there any types of cancers, Dr. Jarris, where a woman should really not attempt a pregnancy uh, because it is just too risky uh, for, we've been speaking primarily of breast cancer, but I, I just want to make certain that we, we circle around and say, is there any type of cancer um, that uh, pregnancy would truly not be in the woman's best interest? No, I really, I hate to make a blanket statement, you know, to really say that I would understand and know every single patient's unique set of circumstances mm -hmm. and, and identify a circumstance where it wouldn't be advisable. But, I, you know, if I would have to be pressed to say something, I think that once we have, you know, we deal with patients who are, who are metastatic and so that we know that the opportunity to treat them for cure has passed us and, you know, becomes a much more complicated scenario in terms of even estimation of life expectancy. I think it becomes harder to um, invite this opportunity for, for these patients. But at the same time, I don't want to ever 
you know, have anyone come away from hearing this thinking that there's an absolute for every single metastatic patient that would make this unlikely, but I do feel that this becomes a, a much more problematic issue to consider for the reasons that Dr. Norris stated very overtly at the beginning. It's it's a, a, a tr tremendous commitment to be a mother, and it's a, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to be a mother. And so to go into that uh, commitment knowing that your life expectancy is, is going to be significantly foreshortened and your ability to facilitate the care of your child is going to be significantly limited, um, I think can create a lot of ethical issues in terms of uh, the appropriateness of fertility preservation. But as I say, I don't want to speak for every any patient or every patient that falls into that category because there always are exceptions in, in, in cancer. <laughs> Yeah, that's that makes good sense. And in parenthood, on the other hand, I do think that we uh that that ultimately uh as parents, uh even our pre-parents, we have to be thinking in terms of what's best for our children, not just what we want. So I I hear what you're saying and that's it does present a much more complicated uh decision tree. Um, if uh, a pregnancy has been metastatic, and I like that, I have not heard the expression, but treat for cure. That's a, I really like the way, I like the way it sounds. Um, are pregnancies after cancer at higher risk for miscarriage or, or preterm delivery or even uh, uh, low uh, birth weight, Dr. Noyce? It doesn't appear so. Actually, that's been reviewed pretty significantly, and it does not appear so. Interesting. Um, now. I would assume that there would be some cancers where surgery would have been required and that might alter the reproductive tract in some way uh, that might make those pregnancies more complicated, or is that uh, Oh, is yes, that if you're talking yeah. about, I'm sorry, I wasn't thinking about gynecologic malignancies. So, yes, I actually a, a third of the patients that I treat have some kind form of gynecologic malignancy, meaning either their cervix is removed, their ovaries are removed, um, in some cases, even the uterus gets removed because they have an endometrial or a uterine cancer. And so, um, you know, there are ways around all of those issues to achieve pregnancy. Um, you know, we've gotten quite creative as reproductive endocrinologists. When a woman has had her ovaries removed, it does not increase the risk of having a miscarriage or an early delivery or low birth weight or anything because we can supplement the hormones that the ovary provides for pregnancy, uh, you know, with a pill or a, or a patch that a woman wears until the placenta is formed, and then the placenta is like a machine it just takes over um, when a woman has her uterus removed obviously uh, there's nowhere to carry the pregnancy and then a gestational carrier would be needed you basically have to borrow mm -hmm. a womb from someone else um, and then for a woman who has her cervix removed so literally there's a procedure that's become quite popular now called a trachelectomy where the entire cervix is taken off for cervical cancer Mm -hmm. And those patients are at increased risk, not so much for early miscarriage because they seem to go along fine in the first trimester, but there are uh, there's a significant risk for having an early delivery, and it can be quite early. It can be in the 20s weeks or early 30s weeks where there's just not enough strength to keep the pregnancy in the uterus. Is there any solution to that uh, scenario? Um, um, because that is a huge risk and, and one mm. that you'd have to – because the, the risk to the child is huge. Uh, yeah, it's a, a lengthy discussion, believe me. That's a lengthy discussion. But I did just have someone deliver. She just delivered. She had twins even at 32 oh, weeks wow. just recently. Wow. So believe me, we don't try to do that. Uh, it was a split, so the embryo actually, we gave her a single embryo, and it split into two, so that happened. Uh, craziness. Oh, you know, that's nature, and nature working <laughs> with us and against us. But um, 
So yes, so pa- so more other preg- patients have as well made it to about 32, 33 weeks with twins, but even with a singleton, it can be like 24, 25 weeks that they deliver without a cervix. So you, ju- you really extensive counseling and always op- offering the option of using a gestational carrier, someone else to carry the pregnancy, even if say we create embryos for them. Uh, do you do either of you know if there are grants or funds available to pay for a surrogate for those couples or women who cannot sustain a pregnancy? Dr. Jarris, I'll start with you. Do you happen to know of any funds that's specific for uh, a surrogacy? You know, I think that there has in each individual center there there are different funds allocated for different uh, unique resources. So I think that it would have to be on a center-to-center basis. But I am not familiar with any specific opportunity to apply for money specific to this type of question. I think that this would be more likely um, specific to each institution where the person might be found. Nicole, do you know of any that are? Well, it's interesting because a husband came recently to me. He's a medical student and he came recently and his wife has passed away from cancer and they created embryos before that, before her treatment. And um, he said there was a source and I don't know what it is, but he found a source of funding to help him to cover a gestational carrier, even posthumously covering that's uh, pretty pregnancy. unusual. Yeah, an unusual very situation. Unusual. And but so there are there there are things out there, but I don't know, and they're and they're not all over the place. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's not like fertile hope or hmm? right. Well, right. let me mention uh, this would be a good time for me to mention there are uh, various organizations that I want to make sure that we give a plug to in on this show. Uh, for cancer survivors to help them with making the decision of whether to have children after cancer and is providing resources. And some of them uh, would, would have access to or can tell you about various granting funds, uh, one of which I'm just going to, in no particular order, uh, the Alliance for Fertility Preservation, which the website is fertilitypreservationalliance.org. There's another one, Fertile Hope. That, that website is fertilehope.org. There's another one, Fertile Action, fertileaction.org. And then there are uh, a couple, uh, Dr. Noyes, that you will mention at the end uh, that, that you talked about. One is myoncofertility.org. And uh, another one, this is, these are both associated with the Onco Fertility Consortium. Uh, and then there's another one called oncofertility.northwestern.edu. Uh, yep. And... All of those are sources for if uh, anybody is wondering uh, that those any of those would be the places to go to get information about uh, grants uh, and and things uh, such as that. And there are uh, I mentioned at the uh, the outset that uh, Faring Fertility I know uh, provides uh, or has the ability to provide for uh, some patients uh, with cancer uh, so that the medications uh, uh, medications without charge that is a, a huge cost saving so there's a lot that can be done uh, for people who are there actually seems to kind of be almost in the, the zeitgeist going on now with the, you know what we can do to help cancer patients with their fertility issues which is which is wonderful actually that we're in this right. position I, 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 yeah I will say that that just uh, last June, it was really exciting. The American Medical Association did pass a resolution that will now lobby for fertility preservation for patients after cancer to be covered by uh, common insurance carriers. So that's another new development to help address this issue, which I do think is going to have some significant impact on the ability for patients to get coverage for this type of care. Surrogacy, I can't exactly 
speak to that specifically, but I think in general for fertility preservation, this was a really exciting uh, resolution to see passed through the AMA. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, are, uh, Dr. Jarris, are children conceived after cancer treatment more at, uh, at greater risk for birth defects? Oh, you know, I, I think that's a that's a good question, and we don't have any evidence to suggest that that's the case. I think that that Dr. Noyce can speak to the risk of, of birth defects after IVF specifically, but for patients who are being, you know, we actually are now over the last decade or so have started treating pregnant patients with cancer uh, with chemotherapy in their second trimester, and even those babies are being born and are meeting all their developmental milestones. And so patients born after cancer treatment, um, babies born after cancer treatment, those babies too, I think, generally fall into the risk of, of any abnormalities being associated with the general risk of the fertility preservation method for which they um, achieve the pregnancy. Well, and just in general then, we'll go ahead and turn to Dr. Noyes. We have done many shows on the latest research, our, our health of children, our prognosis for children, and uh, conceived through all forms of fertility treatment. So I would recommend people to go to our website, creatingafamily.org, uh, hover over the word uh, on the blue horizontal menu across the top, hover over the word infertility, uh, and click on uh, uh, just click on the general uh, information on infertility. Uh, under infertility resources, and we've got many, many shows on that topic. But Dr. Noyes, just so that we have uh, some information, um, so uh, uh, regardless of whether or not a, uh, uh, a woman has had cancer, uh, are, is there evidence to indicate an increased risk for birth defects uh, based on simply the use of IVF or ICSI or any form of fertility treatment? I'm sorry, are you asking me if IVF or ICSI increases the risk of birth defects? That yes. in combination with a history of a, of a cancer, mm-hmm. well, which I don't yeah, think there's any evidence. I don't think there's any evidence on that. Different, so yeah. Just in general, not, not in, uh, irrespective of cancer. The biggest risk to fertility treatment as far as birth defects is there is an increased risk of prematurity, and it primarily relates to having multiple births. And so, um, you know, prematurity often occurs when you have more than one fetus in the uterus. And prematurity can be just a couple of weeks early, but it can be, uh, you know, 10 weeks early, and that can be a significant problem. So that's the primary risk uh, with fertility treatment. There has also been some other data that's, you know, it's not clear. When I advise my patients, I do not personally feel that IVF increases the risk of birth defects. Um, Oftentimes people who are coming for fertility treatment have um, they are not as um, physically fit to be parents. For instance, a woman might have had uh, fibroids removed from her uterus already because she's older and she's had surgery already and things like that. So there's a lot of confounding factors, and it's hard to ferret through that and, and mm-hmm. see what's caused by IVF and what's caused by, say, the womb or the ovary or whatever. Or just the short answer is I don't feel there's a huge yeah. risk. I don't think it causes birth defects per se. Okay. And again, I would recommend we have done many, many shows on this uh, with leading researchers, uh, which are really studying this exclusively. So, uh, yes, here's a question we have from Zinya. She says, would any children I have after I'm finished with treatment be more likely to get cancer because of being exposed to any roaming cancer cells that might not have been totally eradicated in cancer treatment? Dr. Jarris, that might be a question right up your alley. 
There, there are very few cancers that are thought to um, metastasize um, through the placenta, but one that I, I know of is, is melanoma. But these are such rare events that they're more like case reports uh, that are interesting even to the medical community and notable to the medical community. And so for me, that's the one that would stand out in my mind. But even then, the likelihood is exceedingly, exceedingly rare. And that would likely be if, if the patient was affected during the time of pregnancy, not subsequently. So if, and, if and the only other group, sorry, the only other group are the inherited syndromes, like there's familial adenomatous polyposis, hereditary non-polyposis, right. colon cancer. There's some very rare things, Lee-Fermini syndrome, retinoblastoma. Right. So there's some rare right. hereditary things where there is an increased risk for the offspring. But otherwise, I agree right. that no, the answer is no. Right. So, of course, and, and you know, Dr. they're, they're inherited. Yeah, and Dr. Noyes, the cancers you were mentioning are a genetic connection, not a uh, not a Correct. connection right. where somehow the the, the the cancer cell not is the in the woman metastasized right. to the blood somehow and is and gets through the placenta. Correct. Okay, right. that's the. But but let's talk a little about the genetic components uh, to cancer because women and men who have cancer do need to think through the you know whether that if they're are they passing along a gene potentially, so. And I guess Dr. Jarrah should probably be the one to ask this question too. So, how what type of cancers have a strong genetic cause? Well, you know, we, you know, again, as I approach everything, it's through breast cancer, which is my field. But I think the thing that we we focus on the most is the inheritance of the BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations, for which, if a child doesn't does um you know from a parent who has a has one of those mutations has a the parent has a 50% chance of passing along uh the mutation onto the child and so you know that becomes i think a real a decisive issue for the parent to decide if they want to have a natural pregnancy knowing that they can pass along this mutation or they want to do something to take the issue into to more control, which would be to create embryos through IVF and then have those embryos checked through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD, to discern if the embryos would have the, the mutation, in which case they could select against those embryos and choose embryos that didn't carry the mutation. Now, getting a, or inheriting a BRCA mutation for a man, I think, is a much lower risk event in terms of actual penetrance to cancer, though it's certainly not insignificant. It's, it's much more significant for a woman to pass this on to a daughter, where the risks of cancer are upwards of 50 to 60 percent for breast cancer for a BRCA1 mutation and more around 40 to 50 percent for a BRCA2 mutation carrier and the risk of ovarian cancer being more on the order of um, between, I think, 20 and 50 percent for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation carriers. The risks are slightly lower for BRCA2 um, mutation carriers versus BRCA1. So so if a woman uh, or a, a, a embryo uh, can get the BRCA uh, genes from their father as well, if he inherits it from his mother, did I understand you correctly? You You can have... The mutation can come from either the mother or the father, and if the mother or the father has the mutation, they have a 50% chance of passing that mutation on to their child. Gotcha. Okay. All right. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about getting pregnant after cancer. Creating a Family is a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. 
One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You heard at the beginning about some of our gold sponsors. You'll hear in a little bit about a few more gold sponsors. But they, we also have regular sponsors, and we have a infertility service provider database. Uh, and so if you are looking for an infertility clinic, uh, an inf- infertility therapist, or any type of infertility provider, including a sperm bank or an egg bank, please make your first stop the Creating a Family directories on our service provider page. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, a whole host of criteria that we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Dr. Noyes, uh, is the, I would assume BRCA is available for testing using a pre-implantation genetic diagno- diagnosis. Are, is both a, a BRCA1 and 2. Are you able to test for that in embryos? Yes, we are. And interesting, most women are not looking to test for BRCA at this point. So when I'm freezing, well, if I'm freezing just eggs, in general I don't have the woman test for anything beforehand because I feel that technology is moving so quickly that when the woman thaws the eggs later and has them fertilized, you can get a lot more information, say, five years from now than you would be able to now just because of the technologic advances. But if um, if we're... Creating embryos for a woman, say, for instance, who has breast cancer, um, I will often advise them to test for both BRCA and chromosome abnormalities because they can test all of that from the cells that they take out of the embryo. And that way, if they're using a gestational carrier, they know what they're really getting into. So say you have somebody, a, an embryo that's BRCA negative, but it's it's got a, a, a trisomy, an, an extra chromosome that's incompatible with life. You know what I mean? So we try to screen right. out for, if we're going to screen embryos, we try to screen out for as much as we can. And did you I say think- that, that women were not testing? And, and women in this situation um, I would have assumed that they probably, not generally, but I'm talking about women. Yeah, and I think think here in the Midwest maybe we are, you know, I've I've actually had um, a few patients who have tested, and so it may be a geographic issue as well. You know, I think here I have had patients who've tested. Yes, some have, but some haven't, and they said, you know what, when my daughter's 22 or 23 or 24, when she has to start worrying about this, there'll be more more things she can do. Like they're yeah. feeling well, it's so remote from today that they feel it'll it, it's safe enough. Mm-hmm. Well, and that yeah. does make sense. You know, we don't know what the future would hold, and and as far as uh, and so I've certainly heard that uh, women who have not had cancer but are doing PGD for other reasons often would not test for the BRCA gene. But I had, I guess I had assumed that they had had the disease themselves that that might be something that would be more commonly desired for yeah. the test, but yeah. I guess not. I, I think we are having patients who are testing here, and, and I, you know, specifically I have one patient who did, was not able to um, have any embryos that did not have the mutation, and she's decided against having a child. And so I think that we have all kinds of stories. If you're mm. querious, you know, you, you know, when you're, you're at a higher volume center, you're going to see all kinds of, of things and all. But I, I, I agree with Dr. Noyes has said, I think that PGD for BRCA is probably something that's taking hold more now than it did previously for reasons that are difficult to 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 understand. But perhaps the remoteness of the problem or the expectations of improvements in our options are, are major drivers. 
Well, one interesting side point to BRCA2 is sometimes those women are lower responders to medication. They can have lower ovarian reserves. Yeah, yeah. And so if I were a BRCA if I were a BRCA survivor and I had a daughter, I would actually have her BRCA tested because I would freeze her eggs early to know that she had good eggs at an early age. So that's just yeah. my sort of reproductive endocrine such take a, on it. Such an interesting thing to mention and something that I feel like we need a good study to really document this. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So you're saying that so a woman who has breast cancer that it, and there and she is testing and she knows she has one of the uh, BRCA genes. So that that she that, that your treatment the fact that she has this gene will might potentially alter her chances of success with yeah. IVF. Yes. Yes. Oh, Something we know that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. So oh, that's kind of a double whammy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, okay. So then, so in that, from that perspective, what it means is it's important for her to know that for many reasons, for her cancer treatment, for, for no other reason, but um, but also for uh, progressing forward. Uh, would that also play into her decision, a woman's decision, the whole making that whole tamoxifen uh, analysis of when to go off? Would that, with the fact that she's uh, that that her her gene is BRCA connected, would that alter that that analysis? Uh, and I guess, Dr. Noyes, I'm asking that question to you, but I'd love to hear your opinion as well afterwards, Dr. Jarrett. Uh, that's a hard thing to answer. Again, I would defer that conversation to an oncologist. I would not make that decision, meaning would you defer, not say, take tamoxifen for two years, get pregnant sooner, and go back on tamoxifen because your ovarian reserve could be lower? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I, well, I don't know how it would play in, but that's I how I would, would imagine I would absolutely defer in. to the oncologist yeah. on that. I mean, I, I think, interestingly, interestingly, just just in terms of disease, disease biology, patients who are BRCA1 tend to get triple negative cancers, which obviates their issue for this tamoxifen question. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, patients okay. who are BRCA2 do tend to have ER positive cancers for whom tamoxifen has been shown to have benefit. But I think we just go right back to what we said at the very beginning about this decision-making. It has to do with the patient's ovarian reserve when they present and what we can offer them. It has to do with their disease stage, and it has to do with their prioritization of having a child. I mean, those mm-hmm. are the three things. Yeah. And I think that, that we great. can't really get around any of them, you know, yeah. The patient is going to present to Dr. Noyes, and her fertility uh, capacity is going to be an entity that is just immovable at that point. Yeah, okay. So the the, the analysis is the same, and the factor, and you just have to factor in the the fact that the whole the the BRCA issue as well into the into the general analysis that you're doing anyway. Um, speaking of breast cancer, um, Dr. Uh, Jarris, is there any reason that a woman with breast cancer? Um, should not breastfeed, assuming, of course, that she's not had a double mastectomy. Um, is there something about the treatment that would either impact her ability to breastfeed or uh, impact the safety of her breastfeeding somehow that it might uh, uh, well, be not good for the child? A, a patient cannot breastfeed, of course, while they're undergoing chemotherapy. Um, and a patient uh, also um, will not likely be able to breastfeed successfully after they've received radiation to the breast. It may not... It may not um, have the same functional capacity. But I think that of other circumstances, we encourage breastfeeding because it has been shown to, to potentially lower the risk of breast cancer. So if, you've, if you are able to, to breastfeed and you, you're, you, know, the, you're, you, know, you, you have a viable breast post-radiation that, and you're not currently undergoing treatment with chemotherapy, uh, I think it would be perceived as highly appropriate to, uh, to breastfeed. And if you've <coughs> just had radiation on one breast? The other breast should be just fine. 
you know, and I think we try to encourage patients to believe that, you know, many times one breast would be enough to really do a great job at helping to support the child. Yeah, I mean, one breast can produce enough milk, Um, you know, uh, the assumption. Um, What about uh, a lumpectomy? Does that, uh, a breast that has uh, had a a lumpectomy performed, would that impact the breast? Ability well, all the patients, every patient who has a lumpectomy should be receiving radiation. The two are go hand in hand for cancer. So um, if they've had a lumpectomy for benign disease, they likely would be able to nurse maybe with minimal disruption or some disruption, depending on where the incision was made and the, the issue. But any patient with breast cancer who had a lumpectomy, radiation therapy is indicated nearly 100% of the time, especially for young patients. So that just defaults back to the fact that they probably wouldn't be able to nurse well from a radiated breast. Gotcha. All right, and uh, we have time for one last question. And, and Dr. Noyes, can you talk in general about gynecological cancers? Uh, Because we've we've focused more, I think, on talking about breast cancers, but, but we also have gynecological cancers and how that impacts a woman's chance of uh, subsequent pregnancy. Well, I think we talked about that a little bit, about you mean the risks of the pregnancy or if they can get pregnant? If they can get pregnant, I'm sorry. If they, if they can, can get, get pregnant. Okay, so, well, if a woman still has even one ovary left, um, we can often use the eggs that are in that ovary, even to get pregnant naturally, say. So e- removing, say, one ovary is okay. If a woman sort of has the second ovary chipped away at, so some ovarian tumors um, can be bilateral, meaning they occur in both ovaries, so they can lose one ovary and then have a tumor in the other ovary, and you're kind of chipping away at what's left. Then you can get into some ovarian reserve issues, and um, it can be their chance of pregnancy can be lower. So I often, if I have a patient who has a tumor in one ovary and the ovary was removed, or the doctor is... Um, she's a high risk for having a recurrence, they will often be sent to uh, preserve eggs or embryos prior to any uh, tumor forming or um, further surgery is required. Uh, obviously, if both ovaries are taken out, then you become sterile because the ovaries are really the driver in a woman for her her reproductive mm-hmm. function. And then it, even in that case, we often will freeze something before a second ovary or both ovaries are coming out. Um, for cervical cancer, when the cervix has been removed or a cone biopsy is done, um, sometimes it's harder to get pregnant. Some of those women get pregnant on their own. Sometimes it's harder to get pregnant because there's decreased cervical mucus. Um, Mm. In uterine cases, um, so not all uterine cancer requires the uterus to be removed. Sometimes they're treated hormonally, meaning they'll give them a a strong progesterone agent to try to convert the uterus back to normal uh, lining. And in those cases, there's a very high risk of recurrence of the tumor, and so I get this really short window to work with them. Once the doctor's converted their uterus back, they'll say, okay, get her pregnant right away. And so we'll often go directly to in vitro fertilization in those cases Mm -hmm. um, to get her pregnant quickly, like, like what you were saying before, how much time you have the, the recurrence rate is so high with with an endometrial cancer it's more than 50% if you leave the uterus in that we usually will resort right to in vitro fertilization to get them pregnant right away i don't know if that's what you're looking for no that's exactly what i'm looking for yeah. and we just go ahead dr uh, jerry do you have anything to add no i just i think that's great data for patients to have i, I really is. do i think that it that it's very clarifying and very very good data for patients to have and i think that just probably is the last thing i'd want to say which is the sooner you can educate your patient on on, uh, on their circumstances, on their options, and, and the opportunities that they have, the more choices ultimately they're going to walk away feeling like they have to control their lives. 
Exactly. I just I wish Dr. Jarris and I were working out of the same institution. It would be a lot easier if we could refer <laughs> our patients back and forth. To, <laughs> such a pleasure to hear uh, all your, you know, your terrific comments, Dr. Doyle. Great so. idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the really beautiful thing that's happening now is that this conversation, I honestly didn't hear it happening, say, five years ago. And now I, I hear more oncologists talking about it. I hear more reproductive endocrinologists talking about it. So I really feel like we've made you know, great strides in the bringing awareness to fertility preservation with cancer. And I think that the reproductive medicine community and the, and the oncology community have, have actually done a really good job of, of working together in this area. And I'm, and I, for, speaking for the patients, I'm really happy for them. Um, yeah, the multidisciplinary thing is great. It's terrific. It is. And we have to be in this area. I mean, it just mm-hmm. really, it has to be. We have to walk uh, in hand with another specialty to, to, to get the answers. Yeah. Um, let me take a moment to thank one another gold sponsor and remind you that it's through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources provided by Creating a Family, and that would be Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Cryos New York offers donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. Thank you so much, Drs. Jarris and Noyes, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. So, Dr. Noyes, if people would want more information about what you do and uh, in, and and where you do it, what website should they go to? Uh, NYU IVF. I mean, if they look, if they just go into the NYU uh, Lingo Medical Center website, they'll okay. see NYU IVF. Or just Google NYU IVF, and it will. Pop if you just up. Google me, it'll come up. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. And that's N-O-Y-E-S, uh, Nicole yeah. Noyes. All right. Uh, also, uh, it, it, and Dr. Jarris, let me ask you, we've given the two, do you, uh, why don't you give them again, the, the two oncofertility. Yeah, I, I recommend for patients myoncofertility.org as well as oncofertility.northwestern.edu. It's got a wealth of information for physicians as well as patients. And, again, I'm also happy to take any questions personally. And that oncofertility is spelled O-N-C-O-F-E-R-T-I-L-T-Y, um, just because sometimes Perfect. people are confused with the um, with that terminology. Those of us who are those people who are not involved in the field, it's a weird uh, combination. But actually, it's the it's the part the the perfect joining of two different disciplines. So it it should not be. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, as well as our experts for joining us today. And I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium unleaded gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.